Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, as um, Ben mentioned last week, the results of the 2021 census are in. And the Anglican Church is not doing well. Figures show that amongst the decline in Australians calling themselves Christians, the Anglican Church is declining the most. In fact, it's lost more than 600,000 members in Australia over the past five years. It's a funny feeling to be working for an organisation whose failing figures are splashed all over the internet and released by the government. It's tempting to feel like, I don't know, I'm an employee of Blockbuster when uh, Netflix came out or maybe an employee of Netflix now that every other streaming service has entered the market. But anybody who reads the census data can see my company is on the downhill run. Or is it? When it comes to religious affiliation... Census data is really complicated. Yes, there are less Anglicans, fewer Anglicans in pews these days. Our internal data tells us that as well. But what does that actually mean for the mission of my company? Uh, A billion years ago when I was studying, I worked in aged care on the weekends, highly recommend, One morning, while I was setting up breakfast for the residents, I was chatting to an agency staff member who I hadn't met before, uh, an older Anglo man, and, uh, you know, we're talking about this and that, and eventually I shared something about being a Christian, and he said he was a Christian too. And I said something about Jesus, and he looked absolutely indignant. And he said, since when did being a Christian have anything to do with Jesus? If you can call yourself a Christian but not connect that with Jesus, then that right there is the reason why census data is very complicated and perhaps not as depressing as being a blockbuster employee back in the day. To call yourself an Anglican on a census 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago uh, could potentially be meaningless in terms of personal heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ if that label functioned for you as something like being a good person, being a white person, uh, according to what school you went to, where you got married, that sort of thing. One million fewer people in Australia are owning the name Christian today than five years ago. But maybe that figure never accurately represented the heartfelt faith of people in our nation. But there are other factors at play as well in this particular census, the first in five years, and they're pretty serious. Five years ago, the final report of the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse was delivered, 2017. And there may genuinely be people who have lost faith in God, who cannot own the name Christian 
because of the abuses done in that name. Also five years ago, same-sex marriage was made legal in Australia, 2017. And the stories shared through the plebiscite process by the LGBTQI community of exclusion, of mistreatment, of pain, including in churches, have made many people wonder, and especially the millennial generation, whether the church is as morally good as it has always claimed to be. Add to that, of course, the experience unrelenting of floods, fires, other concerns around climate change, and then a pandemic. Faith can be a fragile thing. And the younger generations who are now old enough in this census to articulate their own beliefs have really been through a lot in the last five years, and it shows. But maybe it's a good thing that people are now being honest about their lack of faith. It's kind of like the before photos uh, in makeup transformations that keep coming across my Instagram reels, rude algorithm. We're no longer wearing the veneer of civilized religion and so we can see what's really there and it's not great. When there's no benefit in society to claiming the name Christian, we can start to see honestly what is there in our nation. We don't look like a Christian country so much anymore. And so the church can finally accept that its job is to be on mission, to share Jesus in a diverse, messy unbelieving nation and it has to do so with authentic lives that back it up because nobody's believing words that don't have actions to go with them. We've got no other choice. Of course, that's easier said than done. Except at census time, talking about faith in Australia is really tricky and not just because the church has a bad rep these days. We have unspoken rules in our culture about what you can talk about in social situations. We in the West like to stick to what are called phenomenal topics, not phenomenal as exciting, but as in a phenomenon that you can touch, verify, access through facts, senses, not generally controversial, things like, what did you do on the weekend? The weather was great last week until now. Have you watched Severance on Apple TV? Netflix is dead. How about them Ds this season? I had to Google that one, but I'm happy about it, so that's fine. But what scholars call noumenal things, the transcendent, things like the meaning of existence, values, ethics, religion, faith, uh, you know, life after death, these make Australians super uncomfortable. And there's almost a taboo against talking about them. 
stray from the phenomenal topics, even within families, and the temperature either goes way up or way down, like people get really hot under the collar or the conversation just freezes. When we moved into our street about 12 years ago, we started making friends with our neighbours and uh, we met a lovely family. Uh, the lady was uh, pregnant sort of just before me and, uh, that, you know, a bit bogan, do live in research, uh, and we got chatting about things and eventually um, I invited her to church. And immediately the relationship just froze. And whether it's really thawed since that time, I don't know. Occasionally there's glimpses. It was just too soon. I had no permission in her eyes to speak that into her life. Some missiologists uh, think that the pressure to stay away from noumenal topics is so strong in Australia that it's almost functioning like what we used to call a closed country in Christian missions like Saudi Arabia or North Korea where you would, you know, be, it was illegal to share the gospel. Uh, possibly a little overstated. But I did find this comforting. So many of us in church feel inadequate and guilty when the topic of evangelism is raised because it's like, I can never find the right time, I can never find the right words, relationships freeze. But maybe it's not us. Whatever your experience of coming to faith, wherever you were born, however old you are, you are now living in a culture where the pressure not to talk about these things is profound. Especially in the workplace, school parents, neighbourhood, even friendships. But the challenge from Jesus is still there. The field is white for the harvest. Just like the first century AD when Jesus spoke those words, people are not owning the name of Jesus, but they need him. They need a living, transforming, refreshing relationship with a living, ruling, present Jesus. No matter how comfortable, how socially aware, how successful, how fit, how good to our kids we are, humans in Australia in 2022 are still separated from their creator. They still need God's guidance and loving plan for their life. They still need the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection to bring them into their intended state as children of God, not just with his breath but with his very spirit giving them life. Now I say they, but of course I mean we. 
We all need Jesus, and there is no shame in being here this morning, whatever age you are, and not being sure that you can honestly own the name of Jesus. This is a place for you to safely explore. You belong. And, of course, maybe the they and the we are people that you love very dearly but who are not here right now. Talking about being on mission is not an academic exercise for you. This is about people who you love. And perhaps you wonder whether you can make a difference in someone's life. Maybe the gospel only works for a certain type of person. And maybe your loved ones are just not that person, or maybe you're not. Well, we're looking at Acts 16, and we meet four different types of people who encounter Jesus in four different ways. And they are ways in which you and I can share the faith of Jesus. We might not be able to do all of them, or the person that we're really thinking of might be in only one or two of these categories. So let's have a look. Timothy, Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. We'll start with Timothy. Now, Timothy's already a Christian when Paul meets him, so it could be tempting to leave Timothy out of this kind of list of people who receive the gospel. But that would be a mistake because Timothy has received the message about Jesus and he's done it in a way that's summarised for us there in the text. His mother is a Jewish believer in Jesus and he's also part of the community of Christians in Lystra and Iconium. In uh, Paul's letter to Timothy later in the New Testament, he also summarises this. He says, Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy is an essential example for us today, especially us sitting here, about how people become Christians and how we can share the faith with others. We can be a Christian family that goes to a Christian church. It sounds so basic, but actually this is what brought Timothy to faith. His grandma was a Christian. His mum was a Christian. They shared the gospel with him, and he was in a church community that shaped and encouraged and discipled him, strengthened his faith. Timothy may never have known a time where he didn't believe in Jesus. Next week, we're baptising baby-ish Joseph Malone. And my prayer is that this will be his situation. He's been born into a Christian family, will be part of a believing household, but he will also be presented with the gospel again and again experiencing in word and deed from his parents and his church 
the importance of personal spirit-filled faith. He may have a time where he becomes a Christian or he might never have that fork in in the road, feeling like he's always known. Either way, the work of evangelism and discipleship for him, for my daughter, for your children, is family and church. Now, that doesn't mean that Christian kids like Timothy or Joseph or Phoebe or all of us here won't have forks in the road or decisions to make. In this passage, despite a life of faith, Timothy faces a turning point. He's called to mission and ministry. Will he leave his comfort zone and go with Paul where the spirit of Jesus is leading and opening doors and giving him authority in the churches? He will. And so he is circumcised, a very significant turning point experience for an adult male so that he can live out his faith on the Jewish mission field. Well, if little Joseph and Phoebe uh, are Timothy's, God willing, then perhaps others of us here in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne are more like Lydia, who we meet in verse 13. Lydia is a well-to-do businesswoman, Middle Eastern, uh, selling beautiful, expensive things. Purple was the colour of royalty. It was hard to source. Thyatira was the place where they produced most of these beautiful, rich, expensive things. And she's enjoying a life of privilege and hard work. She's likely intelligent, definitely influential, And by the way that she offers hospitality to Paul and his companions, we can see that she's well-resourced with a good-sized home. Australian author Sam Chan, who uh, writes about evangelism, imagines her spending her working days mixing with fashionable social elites, negotiating contracts and business deals with clients. Maybe you see yourself in that picture. But she's also a moral person who wants to do good and be good. Luke says that she's a worshipper of God, which was shorthand for saying someone who wasn't a Jew, but who was seeking the God of the Old Testament and uh, living with faith. Paul meets her as she's spending time at a place of prayer. I resonate with Lydia, not the size of the house, uh, and... um, Maybe not the hugely, hugely wealthy, but on the scale of things in the world, yes. But before I was a Christian, I was interested in spiritual things, all the spiritual things, so many crystals and Buddhism. But I had a sense that there was something greater in the universe than just me and just what I could see. And I... I also knew there was a disconnect between who I was and who I wanted to be. Now, some of that was perfectionism by virtue of personality and firstborn and all of that. Uh, Some of that was sensitivity to the world around me. It's not how it ought to be. 
I was being well-educated. I had a comfortable life. But I wanted to have a spiritual purpose. I wanted to do, I wanted to have something that would deal with the impermanence and the imperfection that I saw in myself and the world around me. I wanted to belong to something deep, real, loving, powerful, accepting, transformative. I didn't know that it was Jesus. But when, as a teenager, I heard about him, then and now, he and he alone makes sense of and answers those desires, those needs. I've always found that it's been summed up so well for me in the Navigator's tool, Bridge to Life. I don't know if you've seen this as an evangelistic tool. God on one side of a chasm and humanity on the other. We long to live with him because he loves us. He wants to give us eternal life, purpose, impact, meaning, peace, joy, love and acceptance. But we have a problem We have sinned and fall short of what it takes to reach him. And our good works, our religion, our money, our morality, all the things that Lydia was seeking were not enough. Only the cross, God's solution, bridges that gap where Jesus died for us to bring us to God. And as we believe and receive and we trust and say yes to him, we are connected and walk to life. Now, perhaps Paul was using a similar structure in his gospel presentation as he shared at that place of prayer. Tim Keller imagines uh, Paul teaching on how Jesus the Saviour bridged the gap from the Old Testament to Lydia's needs, the needs that could not be met by the sacrificial system or a king that was imperfect. But Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the sacrifice and Jesus the king now made it possible for her to live in a relationship with the creator God she'd learnt about. It's worth you and I having some of these structures in our minds, like Bridge to Life or Two Ways to Live or Four Spiritual Laws or whatever it is, as we encounter people who might be like Lydia. But if you don't feel confident to share that with someone, the best thing to do is what I just modelled with you, to access the reasons why you found Jesus compelling. If you know who you are and what needs Jesus has met for you, then when you talk to someone who is seeking and aware who's thinking about what it means to be human and to be a better human, you might be able to say, ah, I identify that need in you. 
or even if it's different to yours, perhaps you'll know some metaphors or stories from Jesus that meet that need. Of course, we try and do some of that work at church for you as well. So you can just invite them or invite them to meet other people who are good at that. That's fine. But for Lydia, the gospel was presented in a way that logically and beautifully met her needs. And in verse 14, it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, there are some people in the world for whom spending time at a place of prayer, thinking about the big things in life is an unimaginable privilege. They are living with such suffering or oppression that the last thing they can do is think about their purpose in life. They need freedom. They need release from their bonding, bondage. They need a power encounter. And so, of course, we meet this person next in verse 16, the slave girl possessed by an evil spirit that causes her to predict the future. She is, if anyone is, in bondage. Physically, she is a slave taken around by owners town to town so that they can make her do what she does best and they can get the money. She's in bondage spiritually. Somehow she has an evil spirit of divination that's gained control of her. Divination is a word here that we could also translate in English as python, which is kind of weird to us. Some people say, oh, she's got a python spirit. But in Greek mythology, a python serpent was the thing that guarded the oracle of Delphi. So that was the height of the diviners, the seers, the soothsayers, the person that they would go to to hear what would come. And Apollos, I think, kills that serpent. And so to say that she has a python spirit is to say that she can do that oracle work by some means that is not her own. But in the presence of the apostles... This evil spirit reacts just like the demons did to Jesus. Did you notice that? Speaks the truth about who the apostles are and what they're doing. Luke writes, She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, on first reading, this kind of sounds like a great help. You're like, yep, keep it up. Thank you. Listen to her. <laughs> But it was actually a distraction. This woman possessed by a demon, her manner is likely to have been quite unsettling. And her mode of life as a slave being trafficked around was quite unsavory. She was being exploited. And so the apostles can't actually let this go on. And I long for my outbursts of annoyance to be this fruitful. 
But Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Her connection with Jesus, her journey to the gospel, wasn't through wise and persuasive words, although maybe she heard some while she was there in the background. But primarily it came with the Spirit's power. Paul commanding that evil spirit to leave and the Holy Spirit completely getting rid of it. And we know that it completely got rid of it because her owners were furious because she was a completely changed person of no use to them anymore in their exploitation. And so that is where Paul uh, and his companions find themselves in prison. Now, you might not know victims of human trafficking. They are in our community in Australia, particularly uh, in brothels. You may not know people wrapped up in the occult. Although a few weeks ago, uh, one of our congregation members, she's not here right now, um, uh, shared with me that she had a colleague at work who had been reading people's auras and telling their future at social events. And she asked if she could pray for this lady. And surprisingly, the lady agreed, although the uh, congregation member was telling me she was shaking like a leaf, terrified. But this girl prayed for her, and then the woman said that she felt a true sense of peace. Through that prayer, she had encountered the power of a God who could release her from the things to which she was in bondage and a journey could begin. But even if you don't know someone like that, you do know people in bondage. You do know people who feel trapped. You do know people who feel like their finances are weighing so heavily on them or their relationships are so messy that they just can't move. You do know people who are in bondage to addiction, pornography, alcohol, drugs, sex, food, TV, shopping, social media. All of these addictions keep us in chains. And we can experience for ourselves a power encounter with Jesus and also share the gospel through ministering a power encounter to another. You don't have to always have the slick, beautiful, logical words to be able to sell ice to Eskimos. You can pray and the power of Jesus can meet people where they are. Well, finally, and perhaps this is the most relatable in Australia, we meet the Philippian jailer. Many of our neighbours and family members, work colleagues, feel no great tug to be connected to bigger 
spiritual things. They don't experience any sense of failure to measure up. They don't feel oppressed. They're going along just okay, thanks. Many of them have what is a practical or what scholars call a concrete relational view of human life and about knowing things, where the important things are the things that work, things that make a difference in how life goes for you and the people you love. And they live with a goal of being honourable and useful in their important relationships being respected for that. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's people in your family. Maybe that's your brother or sister. Maybe that's people at work down the street. Well, the Philippian jailer we know is this guy because he is um, not necessarily a blue-collar worker. He's ex-military. He knows about honour. He knows about getting the job done. He has no compassion for these guys. They come in having beaten, being beaten with rods and he puts them straight in the stocks. They're in a bad way. We know that because later he washes their wounds. So in between those times, the wounds are doing what wounds do and it's gross. But he is not interested in hearing a presentation or receiving prayer. What he is interested in is whether something makes life work. And so he encounters Paul and Silas in the midst of their suffering and their disgusting oozing wounds, praying and singing hymns to God in the midst of great suffering they seem to be able to connect with something that gives them strength and joy. Okay, maybe, maybe he takes note. But then, of course, the earthquake comes and his whole job is now on the line because everybody can escape. And we know that he's driven by honour and respect because he's about to fall on his sword because otherwise his entire reputation is ruined. But Paul says, don't harm yourself, we are all here. They give him a gift, compassionate action. All of them are there, his job is safe, no one has taken advantage and he falls on his knees. He hasn't heard the message in this setting. He hasn't been prayed for. But he's seen people with joyful worship in suffering and who have done something real good for him. Who have lived out of this love and compassion that they sing and pray about. And so then he says, how can I be saved? Which is, I think, his language for how do I get what you've got? And so then they can say, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. It 
It is so hard in Australia to share the good news of Jesus. But you don't need to put the pressure on yourself of doing it one way. In fact, the scriptures tell us that you must be open to however God wants to use you to do it. It'll be according to your ability, your needs, your openness, and your context and theirs. Be a Christian family to those who are growing up in Christ. Share the gospel with logic and beauty to those who are seeking. Pray for a power encounter for those in bondage. And live out the gospel in joyous worship and compassionate action. Then our company's mission will be very, very fruitful indeed. Amen.